please remain standing for the reading of God's word. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who, were told, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. here let me suit up real quick it's easter which is you know that because i'm wearing a suit also if you die or get married you might also see this suit again uh but easter's a a, a really fun time it's the super bowl of church weekends if you will uh, where we celebrate that we have a risen lord sometimes it's hard uh, to really zero in on what it is that we're celebrating with all the bunnies and eggs and Anybody drive past the airport yesterday? It was the Elks Lodge Easter egg hunt in a, in a tundra, in a blizzard. Uh, but, it, you know, it was before Christ had risen, so naturally there would still be, still be snow, I guess. But sometimes it's hard to zero in on what Easter's about. We'll switch to the, the pulpit mic. I think my, my face mic is, is not working. And I, and I wonder if we... Uh, if we experience Easter in a way similar to the way uncles experience a newborn baby. So my son John is four months old, so I'm, I'm fresh into that, that new dad uh, magic and, and wonder. And it's kind of surprising to me because I've been around babies before. I've been an uncle many times over. I like kids. was excited to have them. And yet, that kid still completely overwhelms me and surprises me every day just by his, his, his existence. When I, when I hold John, I'm four months in, so I'm sure, you know, when he starts getting body odor and stuff, it might not feel quite as magical. But it, it's so powerful. It's like this, this love that was not there before, that seems completely other, just comes out when I'm around him. All the cliches, I realize I'm just like crushing the cl- new dad cliche list right now. But all the cheesy country dad songs, all the, the movies with strong father-son themes are just, just destroy me now. And my, my life has completely changed. But when I was an uncle, it was kind of like, oh, good for you guys. Here's the teddy bear. He's so cute. I'm so happy for you. And all those things were true, but it's just kind of, ah, it's neat. He's a cute little buddy. You know, way to go. Make some joke about how he looks like his dad, unfortunately, or something. And so this morning, as we considered the resurrection, which I love doing, but it also feels a little bit like there's a little bit of pressure because you know what I'm going to preach about every year. And so you've got to 
make it fresh, but it doesn't need to be made fresh. My hope is that, that we would uh, begin to experience the resurrection like a parent experiences the birth of a child. Because a parent's life has changed. There's this transformation, this type of love you did not know you were capable of, and you just kind of show up to it. Whereas an uncle go, goes to visit out of duty and gets a teddy bear and says, neat. <laughs> so how do, how do you experience the resurrection? Is it this transforming, never-the-same, reality-altering kind of deal, or where, where we see love start to grow in our souls that wasn't there before? Or is it like, yeah, it's neat. Way to go, Jesus. What a great guy. So we're looking at Luke's account of the resurrection today, uh, what Alyssa read for us. And I think there are three invitations that we have from this passage uh, in, in, in Luke's account of these women finding, finding the tomb. And my, my hope is that these would be invitations that uh, one after another would draw us deeper into an experience of what the resurrection means that, that would transform us, begin to transform us. The first invitation is to believe the miracle. Believe the miracle of the resurrection. Look at what the women in our sermon do, in our sermon text do. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking spices they had prepared. So the context here is that Jesus was buried super fast because he died so close to the, the Jewish holy day, the, the Sabbath, where you, everything shut down and, and you, couldn't, you couldn't do anything. So he didn't really get a proper funeral after he died. His body wasn't really prepared. And so according to the tradition, these women had gathered up all the stuff and were going to, to honor him. So these women, early in the morning, it's still dark. They just spent a miserable Sabbath knowing that their friend Jesus was dead. And so here we are on Sunday morning, and I might be thinking, if I can at least do this, if I can at least have some closure, if I can at least honor him properly, we can have some peace. They came expecting to find a body, a corpse. Find the, the shell of the, the man they walked and talked and ate with. They were coming to, to have a funeral. Look at verse 2 and 3. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, as a trained, seminary-trained biblical scholar, let me make an observation. Jesus isn't there. They don't find his body. They went all sober-minded and early in the dark morning to have a funeral, and Jesus isn't there. The first step in experiencing any kind of joy, the celebration of Easter, is, is, that, is to believe the miracle. And I know we're all so rational and wise and scientific, but one of the core tenets of our faith is that a dead man came back to life. The tomb is empty. They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So Jesus, all of a sudden, is in a different category. He's not a good teacher. We've had some helpful tips to incorporate into life. He's the resurrected Lord of all. Should have got a preacher sweat rag. I'm not used to all these layers in my suit. So excuse me if it's a little shiny. 
But I, I, I love how honest Scripture is around the resurrection. Every gospel has these accounts of how Jesus' his closest friends, his followers, realized the resurrection. Because none of them were like, ah, I knew it. I was totally fine. This is no big deal. We see the women's posture. They had heard all the stuff, but they still went ready to have a funeral. So when we're doubting or we're skeptical, if you're here today and you're not sure where you stand with Jesus or what you, what you feel or think about Christianity, and you feel, or if you've been around a long time and you just feel really distant, it just feels really out of touch for you, we're not alone. The people who were there struggled as well. It's hard to believe. Another thing I love about Scripture is that it never makes light of belief. It never makes light of belief. Belief is the work that so much of Scripture calls us to. Even the, the commands that have to do with our action really come from a, a operating or acting out of, of what we believe to be true. Belief is hard. We see, we see encouraging things to me like asking Jesus to help us with our unbelief. Jesus doesn't get mad at us when we're struggling with doubts. So the first invitation, believe the resurrection. And it would be fun and kind of easy for me to go through, just let's just talk about apologetics of the resurrection. And there's so many cool things that we could talk about. But let me just do one, the most personal one. It's the fact that you and I are in this room in Michigan today. This resurrection happened 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. There were countless religion starters that claimed to be God before Jesus and after Jesus. And you probably haven't heard of any of them because they're dead. So even if you're not sure where you stand with Jesus or uh, belief is a struggle like it is for me, receive the, receive the invitation to believe in the fact that you're curious, that we're here. That there's this community of people here and, and lots of other local churches gathered around this person. And it's because he lives. If we miss the miracle, we miss the rest of it. We miss the point of Christianity and can fall into all kinds of creepy, wonky, exhausting ways of, of doing life. The second invitation we see in our passage is to accept the message of the resurrection. We believe the miracle and then we accept the message of the resurrection. The women are at the tomb. They wanted to do the right thing for Jesus because they loved him. But when they show up, the, the tomb was empty and there are two people in shining clothes and the women just drop. Look what, it, look what the, the angels say in verses 5 and 7. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Now, there's a small little word in what the angel said that makes a huge difference. Look at verse 7 again that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified on the third day rise. The must is the crucial word there. This is the message of the resurrection. That Jesus had to die. 
the women, they knew that Jesus had died, but they, they hadn't really come home to the truth that he had to die. That this must happen. This was the plan. The death of Jesus must happen. Again, it's possible to say, like Gandhi says, or others, that Jesus was a great teacher. He's a fantastic mentor. He has great tips for life. And this can make Jesus' death kind of like a model. You know, he's a tragic hero. So it's our sober duty to, to follow him. I think the second invitation to accept the miracle, or accept the message of the resurrection, is for, is for, might be for a lot of us church people who do believe the miracle of the resurrection. At least, we haven't thought about that hard. We have no reason not to. We've been taught it for a long time. But we're, we tend to have a breakdown. If you've been around church a while, and you, you, you know, you've tried a little bit at life, like you've tried a little bit to be a decent Christian person, is that we, we might not know at a deep level, we never say this, at a deep level that he had to die, that Jesus must be delivered over, crucified, and raised. Because we are spiritually desperate, we're spiritually bankrupt. That's what the angels are saying here. Don't you remember what he said, how he must die? He must be given up? Because in general, the women knew that Jesus loved them. We see that in how they respond to his death. But look at the transformation here. At first, they, they respond to his death being like, I need to honor him, his memory. I need to live sacrificially. They get up early and do the dead guy duties that you're supposed to do to someone that you love and honor. And I wonder how m- many of us, that is how our Christian life is. It's, it's kind of like dead guy duties. Easter, Easter will remain cold and lifeless so long as Jesus is an example, this tragic hero, someone that, someone that we're indebted to. Easter will remain a, a stressful, busy season where we're scrambling to get stuff together so it's special and we honor his memory. If we don't hear the message of the resurrection that Jesus is your substitute. He's my substitute. He, he wasn't an example. He w- was our substitute for our spiritual poverty. In the first uh, chapter of John, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is why Jesus came, to deal with sin, with my sin, with your sin. And he takes it away by substituting himself in my place. He didn't come to give us instructions for the best life now. He came to give us life, period. He didn't come to make us feel like we have to pay him back with our quiet times and our hard work for the rest of our lives. He came to give us incredible joy and freedom. It's just... It was so fun to read all the resurrection accounts this week. When you look at how people are before and after the resurrection. Look at their religion or their connection to Jesus before they've accepted this message of the resurrection. It's slow. It's serious. Waking up in the morning, very sad. Walking slowly to the tomb. Being scared and hiding in a room. Maybe feeling a little guilty. You couldn't afford nicer spices for Jesus. 
And then they get the gospel. And what are they doing? They're not trudging. They're running. They're not doing stuff for Jesus. They're telling everyone about him. They're not trying to earn salvation. They're telling everybody about complete salvation that is now available because he rose again. It's been really heavy on my heart this week because it's just so subtle. This isn't a situation where I'm trying to share something new to you or information you haven't heard before. But instead, it's, it's kind of like having it come home. Because I think it's possible to believe the miracle of the resurrection like it's a, it's a neat thing. Like an uncle having a nephew for the first time. Without awaking to the overwhelming, shocking, wordless joy of deeply experiencing this new reality. That the resurrection means that Jesus, in your place, has taken away all your guilt and your shame and your fear. The resurrection is the, the new reality that Jesus, in your place, as your substitute, has taken away all your guilt, all your shame, all your fear. When I think of God's story and work in my life, there was a season in college where this happened. I, I am a church person. I grew up in church, and I did my quiet time and worked hard. But there was a season where it was almost like I could feel my sin physically dripping off my body when I woke up. I was finally realizing that I wasn't a good person. I just needed some tips and tricks to adjustments. I needed new life. And Jesus, through his resurrection, provides that. And after that, this this Jesus that I had read so much about changed. When I saw how he must die and rise for me. I saw in my own life all this stress and striving and scheming and expectations that I'd kind of Christianized. You know, I'd, I had verses for them. But at the end of the day, it was Christian-y stuff I was doing to make myself feel better. And over the next few years, and, you know, who am I kidding? It's still happening. It's, it's melting away. This new reality is coming, coming more fully into my life. That Jesus was my substitute. His resurrection shows that the substitution worked. That he's completely taken away the weight of my guilt and shame. The Christian life is one where we're free of guilt and shame and fear. And we move, we're moving towards that. Fear of guilt. Fear, guilt, and shame is completely gone. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Fear has to do with punishment. And that's been taken away. Jesus took our punishment. Let me give you two tests that you can chew on this week to assess if if this is you, to assess the degree to which the message of the resurrection has begun to start really coming home and and to change your reality, to, to bring you into some of this freedom. The first test is the self pity test. How often are you filled with self pity? The sense that you see, you feel like you work harder and try harder in, than most people, and it, it, life doesn't really add up because you feel like you deserve better. You, no one would ever say this. Self-pity test. You never say this out loud, maybe. But you feel the comparison game when you evaluate yourself. You, you tend to seem to come out on top, and you're confused by 
why things aren't better for you. And that means that the depth of our own brokenness isn't that real to us. We think we need chiropractor Jesus. Just like, just kind of a little adjustment to our spiritual alignment because we're pretty good. We've been carrying such a huge load, working so hard to meet everyone's expectations. Self-pity sees the problem out there with those people, not me. Me, I try hard. That's missing the message that Jesus was your substitution because on your own, the Bible says we're all spiritually bankrupt. Like our account is at zero. The resurrection shows that we're not good, that some man must be crucified and rise because we're twisted and broken. And no amount of principles or instructions or adjustments can fix us. We don't need instructions. We need a substitute. The second test is on the other side. It's the self-loathing test. If self-pity is a spiritual superiority complex... Then self-loathing is an inferiority complex. Some of you heard the self-pity test, and you're like, whew, that's not me at all, because I hate myself. Well, this one's for you. It's that sense that you're in utter failure. You get one bit of criticism, and you just fall off a cliff. Ugh, what is the point of anything? I am terrible. Nothing is good enough. Fail a little and feel terrible. Always beating yourself up. That comes from missing the message from a, from a belief, a false belief, that if I could just live like Christ a little bit more, just be a little bit more faithful, I, I'll be okay. But I can't. I'm not living up to his example and his principles. This is also missing the message, not accepting the message that Jesus had to die for you, that he took your place. Because when the resurrection becomes a reality, then that self-talk changes. We're not in denial. We we agree, yes, I have failed. I am spiritually bankrupt. I haven't lived up to the standards. But the joy comes from realizing that Jesus met all those standards for me. So I don't have to walk around feeling bad about myself, feeling guilty, living in a land of self-deprecation. The message of Jesus says, yes, you deserve worse, but instead you get the kingdom. You get the family of God. You get life with God forever because I've taken your place. All that is Jesus is now yours in the resurrection by grace alone. Now Christ himself is my confidence. He's not a model or example He is in me, and I am in him. When God looks at you, Christian, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. Now, the last invitation we see in the passage is to receive the gift. Receive the gift of the resurrection. Imagine you're in a war. You're a soldier in a war. Six enemies are bearing down on you, and you, you look down, and you're, you're, you're out of grenades. Your rifle's jammed. Your foot's stuck in barbed wire. 
there's no hope. And then out of nowhere, your buddy busts on the scene, fully loaded, double-wielding, throwing grenades. He handles all your enemies and you're saved. But he turns to you and collapses. He's been shot several times. And he says with his last breaths, live a good life, be honorable. And then he dies. I say that in a funny way. That's not a funny story at all. I'm sorry. That's a beautiful sacrifice, objectively. Your, your buddy gave his life for you. You were helpless, about to be destroyed, and he gave his life so that you could live, and he gave you some parting commands. So you live in memory of the one who gave his life for you. But here's a question. Can you have a relationship with that guy? After he's made the sacrifice for you, is he there for you? Can you know him? No, instead he's a, a memory. And you live to honor him. But then you come back from war and you're all messed up with PTSD and you lose your temper and you scream at your kids and you make a bad financial move and you, your life doesn't go well and you're stuck in a dumpy job. But you're going to feel terrible that, that this guy gave his life for you. You just keep messing up. Is that how we experience Christianity? That in this epic, beautiful sacrifice, Jesus gave himself for us, and, and so we just are living in guilt in this distant, a-relational kind of make it, back, make it up to him, prove that it was worth it. Jesus did his part, now it's my turn to do my part. And these three invitations build on each other. We believe the miracle, we accept the message that Jesus' death and resurrection was for you, for me. The third invitation is that we receive the gift of the resurrection, which means that Jesus is alive so we can know him, so we can have a relationship with him, with the resurrected Lord of the universe. He's not a war hero that gave his life. And so now we have to live up to that legacy. Jesus is alive. And listen, guys, the the language that the scripture uses to describe how we relate to our risen Lord is just staggering. He's called our friend. He's called our, our brother. It says that we're in him and he's in us. That we are his body. That we're a part of him. That he abides with us and we can abide with him. He says he'll never leave us or forsake us. That he's surely with us to the end. This is just a staggering intimacy. This is no tragic hero. And he chained us to survivor's guilt for forever. He's the resurrected Savior who is with us. And he looks upon us. He looks upon you, those of you who believe in him, with joy. He looks upon you with joy. Look what John 15, 9 through 11 says. This is Jesus talking. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. A joyful relationship is the point, is the gift of the resurrection. It's the, gift, the point of everything. And in love, Jesus calls us to a way of life with him. He gives us commandments 
so that we can abide in his love. We can experience the flourishing human life, not in order to gain Jesus' love, but because we already have it and we can experience this joyful relationship. Now look what, look what happens next, uh, verses 8 through 11. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and the, Mary the mother of James and the other women who, with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose, ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, marveling at what had happened. So another reason why these resurrection accounts are so encouraging is because not only before Jesus died did he say, hey, I'm going to raise again, but even after he's risen, when people tell other people, they're like, no way. An idle tale. That's like pretty, pretty brutal. And it's interesting, we see the women, they, they remembered his words. The angels didn't say new information to them, but they experienced the resurrection and it came home to them. Same with the, the disciples. They were told and they didn't believe. No, depending on how you're wired or how you understand what it means to be human, there can be a temptation to think that if we simply have more information, we can just educate ourselves and others, problems will go away. I spent years of my life diving into information about Jesus while struggling with a porn addiction. So I, I was pretty smart. I knew a lot, but I wasn't much different. Because my faith felt, you know, like standing at a gravesite of a beloved hero. I could speak eloquently about his life and what he did for me. And then stand in awkward silence and, you know, leave with inspiration to try harder. How many of us spend years going to church, but Jesus is just an honorable stranger? When we think about our life story, he doesn't even get mentioned. He's kind of this uh, impossible ideal that we keep kind of on the periphery while we're doing real life. When we see, we begin to see that Jesus is alive and that he's for us. His joy will be in us and our joy will be full. Then we can really start to change. Experience freedom from porn, from anxiety, from insecurity, from anger. These things are transformed by a relationship with the resurrected Lord. Look what the angels say in verse 5. Why do you seek the living among the dead? You can seek more information about a dead person, but you cannot have a relationship. Relationship is the gift of the resurrection. So the big question is how? How, how do we receive the gift of relationship with the resurrected Lord of the universe? Well, there are many ways, and this is in the work of being a Christian, diving into the riches and joy of a relationship with Jesus. And we talk about them every week, so come back. And go to connecting group and just be, the, the, that's what our whole community is shaped around, experiencing more of Jesus. But there's one way that we see in this text. Look at verse 12. But Peter rose, ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling 
at what had happened. So Peter goes to check it out. He's curious, and he must taste and see. He already had the information, remember? Like the women told him, hey, he's risen. Psalm 16 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Scripture is always using these really body-driven kind of experiential language about our relationship with God. Because it's not enough to just have information. So he sees for himself, and then he goes home. But he's not just going home, kicking a rock, and thinking about getting brunch. It says he's marveling at what had happened. Marveling, it's it's a big word in the original Greek. It means to just be overwhelmed with astonishment, just like struck, to be curious, surprised, and receptive. It's the word that was used often to describe the crowd's response to Jesus' miracle. They see a lame man walk, and it said they marveled. It's like a new dad holding his son for his firstborn son and marveling at what happened. This tiny human exists, and I am undone with love. That is marveling. So in the invitation to receive the gift, I think what we see Peter doing here is he's creating space so that he can receive it, so that he can taste and see it. He can experience, make space to marvel. There wouldn't be much space for me as a new dad to marvel at the miracle of Johnny if I, was all, if I never held him, if I always had my phone. Or I was watching Netflix, or fiddling in the garage, or working all the time. Peter left what he was doing and explored the resurrection. Marveled at it. I believe the main thing that holds us back from receiving the gift of the resurrection as, as Christians and isn't hedonism, isn't torrid affairs and meth addictions and embezzling millions of dollars. It's the fact that we have no space for this relationship. Our hands are full with the the cares of the world. Or if our relationship with Jesus, if our joy in Jesus is a plant, one of the parables says it's choked out with weeds, which are the cares of the world. Our careers, our kids' activities, or just the distractions from limitless content that we have all have in our pockets right now. Do do we have space to receive the gift of the resurrection? So that we can know love and delight in a living Savior who's with you, who has joy in you and invites you to have joy in him. So let's leave here believing a man came back from the dead. And believing that this miracle confirms his message. That he came to take your place. And then ask him, ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes so you can see him. And set aside time to develop the discipline of wonder. Create space to marvel. The source of all life came for you, lived for you, died for you, and rose for you. And you can know him today.
As we approach today, we see Jesus in giving us this, this practice, this ordinance of communion, giving us something that we can do physically with our bodies to respond to this invitation to receive the gift of the resurrection, that his uh, body was broken and his blood was shed. Our tradition here is to pass out the cracker, wait till everybody's been served, and then take together, and then we pass out the cups of juice and do the same. Uh, anyone who calls Jesus Lord, we invite you to partake of this meal with us. Uh, but if you're still trying to figure out where you stand with Jesus, we encourage you to just let the plates go by and, and take this time to, to consider the risen Lord of the universe. Let me pray. Father, we praise you for uh, the, the incredible gift of the resurrection. We, we praise you for the freedom of knowing our Lord and Savior who did the work for us so that we can know you and then invites us, as beloved children, into your work. Father, I pray as we have this time of reflection, this time of communion, that you would meet us, that you would free us from condemnation, place us in Christ. May that be real to us. Would you put us all on a journey, further us on our journey to a joy, a joyful relationship with Christ our Lord. In his name. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples, and he took the bread, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
the bread. After he took the bread, he took the cup of wine. Simple practice of a cracker and juice. Thank you for a chance to participate in this physical thing that points us to this spiritual uh, reality. Would you change us, Father, by the power of your spirit? In Jesus' name.